I'm Susan Weisbauer, co-author of The Well-Trained Mind. And I'm Susanna Jarrett, editor at The Well-Trained Mind Press. And we're talking about education for all parents and for all children in all sorts of settings. Today, we are so excited to have Courtney Ostaff with us to discuss classical education for children with learning differences. Courtney is a co-host of the Modern Classical Education podcast and a co-author of How to Homeschool the Kids You Have, Advice from the Kitchen Table, which I highly recommend for both new and old homeschoolers. It's a greatest title ever, Courtney. Yes, it is a great title and a great read. Very succinct, (laughs) filled with hows, with hows and how-tos, not... um, too theoretical. Super useful. She is also a homeschool mom and a well-trained Mind Academy instructor. She has both personal and professional experience with students who have learning differences. Courtney, welcome to the podcast. Well, and thank you so much for having me. And I, you liked my book. <laughs> <laughs> Speaks the author. <laughs> um, today, I'm looking forward to really being here and digging in to learning differences in the homeschool with a classical education focus so important. Yeah. And Courtney, um, I, I'm, I'm so delighted that you're here. I, can you talk just a little bit more about that personal and professional experience with learning differences? Sure. So professionally, I'm a teacher, which means I, and I in particular have multiple certifications. So I'm certified in math, five through adult, science, five through adult, and social studies, five through adult. I really like school. <laughs> and I also have teaching certification in teaching the visually impaired, and that's birth through adult. And so oh, wow. as part of that, like I really had, I had to learn Braille and how to teach math oh. and Braille. And how oh, to deal fascinating. With that it was work, let me tell you. And then for several years, actually, I taught community college algebra, which mm. was a, a, it was mm. a great learning experience for me. Um, and that's where I first became aware of learning disabilities and how they impacted student learning. Mm. And then, of course, now I'm an instructor at the Well-Trained Mind Academy. And I feel, and I think other people also feel, that like mm, homeschoolers tend to be kind of overrepresented in the learning mm-hmm. differences department, sometimes because they're not well represented at their local public school. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, good research is hard to find, but I feel as though I've had um, kind of an outsized number of mm-hmm. students with learning differences in my classes. And so that's professional. Now, personally, both of my children have learning differences. And in fact, my eldest, who has given me specific permission to speak about this. I always say that too. Yes. (laughs) Um, She has a specific learning disability in mathematics. Hmm. And so, you know, and as of course, as often happens when your children get diagnosed in middle age, I ended up getting diagnosed with a learning issue as well. So it's really personal for me and professional. That is so fascinating. And, you know, we're going to have to, Susanna, make a note, we're going to have to do a whole nother episode on community college mm-hmm. because community college is such a fantastic local resource. Yes. Um, but I also feel that you probably have a little bit of an overrepresentation there because mm-hmm. many kids who choose community college feel uneasy going directly into a you know rigorous four year liberal arts school. And that's often because of a learning difference. Mm-hmm. That yeah. makes sense. Yep. Well, today in the podcast, we're going to be specifically talking about classical education for students with learning differences, classical education really for everyone, because as we've noted before in the podcast, there's this sort of stereotype that Mm -hmm. classical education is for the most intense families, the mamas who have it all together. And 
for the most academically gifted students. Um, but we think that's that's uh, an unfair stereotype that classical education has a lot to offer everyone. I got to agree. But also, I was one of those parents. It's me. I'm guilty. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know... I I say this often. This is a great chance to say it again. We never expected everyone to do everything in the well-trained mind. I've said this at so many conferences. I didn't do everything in the well-trained mind. Um, And people look at me with like these, this shock. I'm like, you didn't? No, I didn't. (laughs) What's there is a pattern. And then what we were aiming to do was give parents all of the possible resources that they could draw on with the expectation that they would take this pattern and adapt it to their students' need. Every student is different. Every student has different strengths, different weaknesses, different learning styles. Family patterns are different. We never, never, never expected the well-trained mind to be a blueprint in terms of I'm going to check off everything in these boxes. That would have been completely Mm -hmm. unrealistic. And I do know that in the very first edition of the well-trained mind, under pressure from our publisher who had no experience with home educators, we did put schedules in which were like, Mm -hmm. if you wanted to do everything, here's how you could fit it in. And I didn't want to put them in at the time. We pulled them out from the second edition on. So don't go look at them in that first edition (laughs) because the goal was never to have this sort of rigid, here are the things that you must do to be educated. You know, the more I hear you talk about it, the more I feel like I can say that I got a classical education because my parents love the well-trained mind, but my mom always called us eclectic homeschoolers Mm -hmm. because we didn't do everything in the well-trained mind, but we use so many of the ideas and principles in it. Um, so that's always nice to hear. That's how you're supposed to use it. <laughs> right. So that means that it's, it is completely open to students who don't have that sort of, you know, traditional sit down, study a book, get the information, pass the test mentality. Mm-hmm. There are students who can do that and that's great, but that's not the only people that classical education is for. Right. I really agree because, you know, I see it with my own kids. We, I, I, every spring I get out my copy of The Well-Trained Mind and I open it up and I refresh and review, but there's no way I could possibly do all those things. Yeah, actually, we've talked about this before on the podcast, but classical education isn't something to which you should stretch and press and pull your child to fit. It's better to mold these principles of classical education, of ideas in the well-trained mind to your student versus the other way around. And if you want a longer discussion on that, check out our podcast episode three, what classical education isn't, uh, if you haven't already. That was one of my favorites. Classical education is not a Procrustean bed, and there is your classical reference for the day. (laughs) Go look it up. We might have to insert those in every podcast. I know. We should start marking them. (laughs) Yeah. So because of that, you're absolutely right that the principles of classical education are helpful for students, all students, including those with learning differences. So I think that if you're a parent who has children who learn differently, if you're an educator who wants more ideas how to support students, then I think some of the things we're going to go over here are going to be really helpful for you. Yes. And I think before we dive in too deep, we need to talk a little bit about defining our terms, because when you get into the world of learning disability, learning disorder, learning difference, there's a lot of terms that are sometimes used in different ways, sometimes used interchangeably, different groups of people use different uh, definitions. And so it can be a very hot topic. We want to kind of address that before we move too far into this discussion. And Courtney, I think you have some experience with how hot under the collar people can get over the proper use of these, quote unquote, proper use of these terms. Oh, yes. I have been scolded. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> oh dear. <laughs> but it's true. It is really sensitive. And as a parent myself, it's also, um, I feel personally sensitive about it sometimes, mm. right? Because mm. you know, I love my children, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't have to be a bad thing. And sometimes when you, you get in there and you take ownership of it, it's really empowering. And so that's mm. important. So this is, I guess, one of the reasons why I tend to use the word, and we're going to use this throughout the podcast, differences, learning mm-hmm. differences, by which I always mean students who struggle with the sort of straightforward traditional presentation of information that we're all used to by being taught in a traditional classroom. You know, whether that is a difference in in verbal processing, whether it's a reading difference, whether it's something having to do with processing mathematical information, whether it has to do with attention span, difference just means you don't fit into the mold that I think we all, maybe particularly as parents, kind of have in the back of our heads mm-hmm. as who the kids are going to be. And of course, they never come out the way we thought they were going to be in any way. So I like the term differences because it 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 reaches out to enfold this whole, I'm making a big enfolding motion with my hands now, which you can't see. It would reaches out to enfold all of those students who otherwise might feel like they can't do classical education because they can't mm-hmm. sit down with a book, read it, and then take a test. Right. Right. And it reminds me also, we've talked on this podcast before about the sort of the Prussian school system and how schools today are designed for a specific type of student. And for students who fall outside of those lines, learning difference is a nice term because it's a a little broader to that's what we want to target today is students that that don't do well under the kind of rigid traditional system. And I think it's important to note that learning disability itself is really a legal term that parents can use as a tool in the school system to get accommodations for students um, when the way that the school runs doesn't particularly meet their their learning needs. So you can get an individual education plan called an IEP or a 504. And then if you have that for your student, your student is legally obligated to get the accommodations in the plan. So when I was a teacher at the beginning of the year, I would print out all of my IEPs, all my 504s in this big old binder. And then I knew, you know, these are the things that this is the things that Charlie needs. This is the thing that Jessica needs. Mm -hmm. Um, And the things that I, as a teacher, am legally obligated to make sure they have to help them, you know, be accommodated in their classroom environment. One of the reasons why disability, why we're sort of avoiding using this as our overall term in this podcast is because not all homeschoolers need to have a diagnosis of a disability. Sometimes it can be useful and we're going to talk about that. But all homeschoolers and teachers, just parents generally, need to be aware of differences. Mm-hmm. I, I was just going to mention that at one point when I was working as a public school teacher, I was writing IEPs and the mm. IEPs themselves are actually kind of very limited documents because it's mm-hmm. really about what's happening in the specific area in a specific classroom. And one of the joys of homeschooling is that it's much more expensive, right? We're not limited to what we can provide in a classroom. And so in that sense, we can do we can do more. Right. We don't, would, we don't have to plan for movement breaks. We can just take them. <laughs> right. That's actually, you Sometimes know, they just when, happen. When I was teaching at a Montessori school, managing that binder was so much easier than at the traditional school because so many of the very common accommodations that students need to learn, like using a planner, having a movement break, frequent check-ins with the teacher, we were doing for all the kids. So it was a lot easier to manage the binder. And, you know, the same is true of homeschooling. You have a lot more flexibility to meet your child where they are and, and give them what they need to succeed. All right. So so now that we've sort of we've we've got our parameters laid down here, we're going to hand the floor over to Courtney for a few minutes and say, Courtney, 
what makes classical education particularly well-suited for students who may have learning differences? Well, please forgive me for I'm about to get a little technical. I'll go for it. <laughs> so way back in 1988, which actually doesn't <laughs> feel that long ago, but anyway, two researchers named Recht and Leslie did a study about reading comprehension. It's commonly called the baseball study. You can totally Google it. Super famous. We can put it in the notes, mm-hmm. too. We can put a link in the notes. What they found was that the more you know about a given subject, the better you are at reading about it, which like, you're like no, really. I'm like, yes, but really. But also the implications here are really profound. Mm-hmm. Actually, Courtney, go back and say that again. OK, because I think people need to really hear it. The more you know about a given subject, the better you are at mm-hmm. reading about it. It's so interesting because I I don't want to go off on a rabbit trail, but, you know, one of the big discussions surrounding the SAT has been the fact that in the reading comprehension passages, they're sort of culturally skewed. I know there was a really famous example where the whole reading comprehension passage was about a yacht race. And Mm. people were like, I have never seen a yacht. I have no idea what all these words mean. You know, this is obviously going to suit the top one half percent of students who were raised at country clubs. This is not fair. And it's exactly that same problem. Problem there. If you don't mm-hmm. know what you're reading about, your comprehension isn't going to be as good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and so this actually is really central to this idea of classical education being good for students with learning differences. This mm-hmm. means if we want our students to read well, and and, and I don't, like I don't care what your kids' learning differences like, they could be dyslexic, visually impaired, whatever. If they if we want them to read well, then they need to know stuff. Hmm. <laughs> and to me, one of the key bits of classical education is a sort of openness to the joy of systematically learning about the world, especially with our younger children. Mm-hmm. So and and I think a lot of people kind of like intuitively get this. That's where you get like the poetry tea times mm-hmm. and the preposition recitations and, you know, digging into like ancient history and, and planting gardens and stuff. But it's mm-hmm. actually really important. And that's so interesting because I feel like that the uh, the general educational approach to students with learning differences has kind of been the opposite. Like we have mm-hmm. to teach them how to process. We've got to teach them skills. We've got to teach them how to do things to mm-hmm. the detriment sometimes of giving them stuff to know about. Yeah, well. So show my age a little bit here, but, um, you know, when NCLB came around and this emphasis on testing, which is not all bad, I will grant that. NCLB. That's the national, no child left behind. It was a piece of federal legislation. So the the emphasis in schools kind of changed. And actually, according to the National Center for Education Statistics, which is like a, a, a federal program. So in according to that, in a typical public school, students will spend less than 30 minutes per day on social studies. And that's oh, wow. history and that's geography and that's religious studies. And that's the, the art that goes with history and the music and the, and the crafts and all of that gets squeezed into less than 30 minutes per day. Oh, man. Yeah. And so science is similarly squeezed and that's when they get it. Mm -hmm. My local public schools, which are arguably among the best in the state, they don't offer dedicated social studies or science time until sixth grade, Mm. until they're 12 years old. These kids are hitting puberty and have never had a focused science study. That's over half of their educational time without any dedicated social studies or science. And this is not uncommon nationally. 
Right. And if I can just interject there, when I was teaching even in middle school, so this goes beyond the elementary years, but I think it applies in elementary as well, with how things are organized now, subjects like social studies and science are not tested. And so in a lot of schools, they're not emphasized, even elementary, middle school and beyond. There was just no sense of urgency for the science and social studies classes at the schools where I taught. And it's sad to miss that window of time when they're just interested in everything. They're excited about it. Yeah. They want to they want to learn stuff. And not only, I think, is it fun, like it's so much fun, but also it matters critically, critically Mm -hmm. for students with learning disabilities and other differences because they're learning differences and reading is fundamental to learning it underlies all like learning in in, you know because learning comes in books most of the time and even i don't care if you're teaching math like if you want to talk about like ellipses that's a word you have to know what the word ellipses means and so our students with learning issues already have enough difficulty learning they don't Mm -hmm. need this additional burden of lack of knowledge of the world around them That makes so much sense. And it's just, we've talked so much on this podcast about taking advantage of students' natural development and their natural curiosity during the grammar stage. And this is just like another another reason why that collection of knowledge is so, so important and aligns so well with the classical education. Yeah. So that classical focus on, you know, the, the, I, you know, I really hate the term social studies because Mm -hmm. I'm like, but that's almost everything, right? Right. I mean, social studies is (laughs) stuff. Everything we learn about the world is social studies uh, that, that, that really delving into Mm. the the history and the science and the reading, the literature, all of this stuff that the classical curriculum lays out really does help students read better because background knowledge is so important to exercising that skill. It's so short-sighted to focus just on the skill rather than on the larger, here is why you're developing this skill in the first place. It's to learn all this fascinating stuff. Mm. And one of the things that I think is overlooked a lot is people are like, oh, we'll get to that later. Mm. And okay, maybe you will get to that later, but also it's cumulative. It's it's exponential. So like I'm not like drawing this my hand across the screen, but <laughs> we we're all making big circles with our hands as we talk, people. <laughs> but they call it the Matthew effect, actually, after the Bible mm. verse. And it's it's almost because knowledge is like um almost like Velcro. If you have a little bit, then you can oh, I know. I know. Remember in that chapter of The Well-Trained Mind where you talk about making pegs or hooks for mm-hmm. students to hang their mm-hmm. knowledge on? you got to have some pegs. And then once you have pegs, you can hang something and then you can hang mm-hmm. something else and then you can hang something else. And so it's cumulative. Oh, and it's not just mm-hmm. over subject, but over time. So the kindergartner who like tags along with, you know, your third graders medieval history, they there's a reason why those younger siblings tend to like have more knowledge because they're tagging along Mm -hmm. and and they stick it and they stick it and they stick it and it's like this giant it's how you make a a snowman you know you roll it along Mm. and it's so important to get there early like had one wish get them there early well and you know the example that i often use is that if you if you learn a word or you learn about something that's going on in the news or you hear hear a bit of information that you never knew before all of a sudden you see it 
in other places, right? You see it. It's, it's in a headline mm-hmm. on the, when you're in the grocery store. You hear it on the radio. You keeps popping up. And the truth is it was there all along, but you didn't have a place to put it. You didn't have a recognition of it. And so it just went by you and didn't even, you know, didn't make any impact on your brain. So, you know, the best thing we can do for these little brains that have learning differences is like give them all these receptors, right? Give them all mm-hmm. these little places where when they hear that term again, when they hear about that idea again, they're like, oh, I get that. I know Mm -hmm. what that is. So all those poetry tea times and times table recitations and all that other stuff, that's what these kids need. They do. And 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 I don't and and yes, you need to work on whatever it is that your kid is not great at. I get that. But this this idea that classical education is like some extra gloss on top that it's like the icing on mm. the cake it's not mm. it's not it's it's the antidote it's mm. it's this riches for students who need it more than most yeah. because they won't pick it up as easily as other children particularly through reading that history that science the geography the music the latin it all helps them learn because it helps them read better because they know more stuff Mm. Well, Courtney, you have definitely you're preaching to the choir a little bit, but <laughs> definitely convinced me that this is this is something that's really important to talk about. And we'll be right back. The Well-Trained Mind Academy, founded by Susan Weisbauer, offers live online instruction and in classical teaching methods that fit your students' educational plan. Our instructors are highly qualified in their fields and have years of experience in teaching, tutoring, and homeschooling. We work closely with students, parents, and instructors to create an educational environment that fits the needs of each family. From calculus to Japanese to essay writing to medieval history, the Well-Trained Mind Academy offers 150 courses for grades 5 through 12. Visit WTMAcademy.com to learn more. But let's dive now into more practical advice about how do we do this? How can we fit a classical education model to meet the needs of the child versus the other way around. And this is something that I actually do tackle quite a bit in Rethinking School, which was Mm -hmm. sort of my follow-up to The Well-Trained Mind. It was a, here's why how you have always thought about education might not fit your kid, and it's not the kid's problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So I have a few thoughts about this. So let me offer them to you, Courtney, and then I'd love to hear your responses. Okay. So I I think that, and you can always tell me I'm up a creek if you're like, no, that's not right. Um, I mean, I think, but I think particularly if you are moving out of a school situation and particularly if you're moving out of a school situation that the child has been struggling with because of one of these learning differences, that the first thing you have to do is try to cleanse yourself, and this is easier said than done, of this fixed mindset about what a grade looks like. Mm-hmm. Not only what a grade looks like, but even like what you should be accomplishing each year because we tend to think six subjects every day for 45 minutes. You know, we, we just, the rigidity is so built into us that it's hard to adjust there. Um, and that's the first thing I think that you've got to do if your classical education is going to fit your kid and not the other way around. 
So yeah, I think I think it helps to learn a little bit about like what sixth grade is because the truth mm. is that those what sixth grade is will vary a lot depending on where you live and you know mm. what school you go to and maybe even what teacher your student gets. And so remembering that like there is no like er sixth grade right there. <laughs> there is no like platonic ideal of the sixth grade, right? It can help step away from that. You get to make it. In fact, the great thinkers of the 19th century would have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> what is sixth grade? What, what is this? What is this thing we call sixth grade? What do you mean? Um, yeah, so you, you're absolutely right. A lot of the standards and you know, we'll link to rethinking school if you're interested in the sort of the historical background of this. It is something we've talked about on earlier podcasts as well. But a lot of the standards that we're holding our children to are arbitrary. They came about in the 20th century. But I do think so just to just to go sideways for a minute from the kid to the parent, and I know we're going to talk about this a little bit more as we as we talk about diagnoses and when they can be useful. But I think a lot of times as parents, we hang on to the labels because they're the sixth grade label because they're comforting. They give us a roadmap that is uh, helps allay some of our fears. And the number one fear is I'm not doing a good job with this kid. Um, I think for homeschoolers, mostly homeschoolers with kids with learning differences, pull the kids out and start homeschooling them because the school is not doing a good job with mm -hmm. the kid. But then what you do is you sort of take that expectation of, well, I'm going to do what the school was doing. I'm just going to do it better. Mm. And I don't think that's helpful for students who have learning differences. Courtney, I don't know what your thoughts might be on that. Yeah, because so in a school, there's like a, a set pace, like all my fourth graders will, I don't know, learn to write an essay this year. And your student might not be there yet. Mm -hmm. and, and that's OK, because I think and, and I mean. I might be wrong, but I think it's more important to go and backfill and strengthen those skills mm -hmm. than it is to, you know, make them feel like they're a bad human because they can't pop out a, a 3.5 essay at age 10. You know? mm -hmm. Yeah, I've <laughs> read I some of those argue. essays. They're really bad. <laughs> <laughs> but I'd argue that's not really that's not really what most fourth graders need to be working on anyway. Come back to me when your kid can write a really good sentence and then we'll talk. <laughs> So I think what we're talking about here is that instead of looking at the grade and mm -hmm. then trying to slot the child into it, we observe the child. We look at the child and we tailor the education to the child because students, and I say this a lot, students go through, <laughs> they go through different developmental stages with different subjects at different times. They don't develop evenly across the board. Sometimes they're ready to do logic stage work when they're in fourth grade in one subject, but they're going to stay on grammar stage work in another until they're in sixth or even seventh grade. That's just the way kids develop. And kids who have learning differences, I think a lot of times what we're labeling as a learning difference is sort of an unusual gap between the work they can do in one subject and the work they can do in another. Yeah, I think of it as students being spiky. Like they have a <laughs> spiky, a spike here. They're good at this. And then like, you know, what makes a spike a spike is if there's a contrast down here, right? And they're they're not they're not at the same level. And that's okay. Actually, my at one point my oldest was doing six different grade levels of work in six different areas. <laughs> <laughs> that was a fun year, let me tell you. That <laughs> sounds tiring. <laughs> so we really need to, instead of like looking at this grade question, is we've got to be really sensitive to the child's response to the work. I know one of the things that I've always said is that when kids cry, 
<laughs> They're telling you something and you should listen. I can't tell you how many parents have come up to me at conferences and said, whenever I got the math curriculum out, I cr- the kid cries. What should I do? That was me. That was me What's, in fourth grade. Really? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> what what did you what did your mom do about that, Susanna? Um she, you remember? I I wish I remembered more. We were actually, I think it was fourth grade was the one year that we were homeschooling, but alongside a charter school in California, you, we were living in California, you have to kind of align with the charter school to homeschool, at least at that time. And we were using their curriculum that they offered. And it Mm -hmm. was so different than anything I had ever used before. It was like on a computer. I took tests. I'd never taken tests before. I was failing the tests. I didn't know what I was doing wrong. And then I was just taking the tests again and again until I passed the test because I could take it an unlimited amount of time. Um, But eventually we realized that curriculum wasn't working for us. And so we just, she pulled pulled me out of that and got Mm -hmm. me doing something different, which I appreciated because it was a lot of tears. Yeah. I mean, the tears, the anger, um, if the kids get angry, if they ball things up, if they, okay, especially I think for little boys, when they do the thing with, I'm, I'm doing a thing with my hand that you can't see. When they do that thing with the pencil where they grab it and they like grind it down into the paper really, really <laughs> hard, um, that's anger. Mm-hmm. Or if they just stop, they just shut down. Those are all expressions of this is developmentally inappropriate. And mm. they can't say this is developmentally inappropriate because it's developmentally inappropriate. They don't know what's wrong. They can't put it, if they could put it into words, they'd be able to do it. So just being, I think, really sensitive to those nonverbal expressions of frustration is a big clue as to what whether your kid is working on an, the, the level that you've got them on, whether they're able to do that particular amount of work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I agree. I would also there is there's a caveat too, which is that especially when you have a child with a learning difference, sometimes it's just not going to be easy. There's no, some days, some children, some subjects, it's just never going to be easy. My youngest actually has a chronic health condition and she was sick all the time from like age 2 to 7. Like oh probably 3 weeks out of the year this child was sick. And I thought to myself, if I wait until she's well to learn how to read, this child will never learn how to read. Mm-hmm. So we did it even when she was sick and she was unhappy about it. Like, I, and I felt bad. But on the other hand, she did learn how to read. Yeah. <laughs> like, so, yeah, you have to be like, like there's a continuum, like the, the, the crying and the falling down out of their chair and hiding under the table. Not <laughs> great. The, the I don't want to do this because I don't feel good. OK, that's also not great. But there's a long way between like a tummy ache and and 103 degree fever and like finding finding a way there is mm. What do they call that? Threading the path. Thread, also- yes, that's so tricky. I, I I talk a lot of times, this was actually my mother's metaphor about um, being nibbled to death by ducks, right? So the idea is, I don't know, we have ducks here on the farm, is that a duck could eat a human being. It would just take it a really, 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 really Why? long time because <laughs> they've got those blood little beaks. So a lot of times with kids that are struggling, you have to really think to yourself about what time pressure am I putting on this? Am I thinking mm-hmm. we've got to get through this today? We've got to get through this this week. We've got to get through this book this year. Sometimes when the kids are ha- are having those, you know, and all kids complain, you know, they just mm-hmm. do. If they don't complain, it's because they're operating out of guilt and a desire to please you so they don't get into trouble. So that's not great either. <laughs> so you can, you know, complaining can be healthy. But if you insist on, you know, 10 minutes a day never killed anybody, mm-hmm. even if they're not feeling great. If you just do 
it really consistently in small chunks, you will move forward. But what that means is that you've got to adjust your thinking, again, particularly with kids that have different challenges, so that you're not tied to some sort of chronological progression. This like platonic, we talked about the platonic sixth grade. I'm not sure that's the word we used, but the ideal sixth grade, (laughs) the platonic sixth grade. We're not talking here either about a platonic grammar stage or logic stage Mm. or rhetoric stage. Kids with learning differences, and I would say particularly those with processing issues, just sometimes need more time in each Mm -hmm. stage. They need a little more time in the grammar stage before they're ready to move on to logic style thinking. They need more time in the logic stage. There There are kids, I think, who don't actually hit the rhetoric stage until they're well into college, because Mm -hmm. that's just the chronological progression that they are on. And that's the extra time that they need. And so, you know, I said the well-trained mind is you're not supposed to do everything in it. Also remember that those sort of age and stage guidelines for grammar and logic and rhetoric, they're just starting places. They're suggestions. They're not rules. Right. One of my favorite points that I highlighted all over the place and while reading How to Homeschool the Kids You Have, your book, was this idea that for specifically where a student struggles, focus on making progress versus meeting a certain grade level standard and celebrating that progress with your student. Because I imagine it would be really discouraging if you're in third grade, but you're doing first grade math and you learn something new, but you're still not doing third grade math. You know, you you have to celebrate that progress. I make literal cakes. (laughs) Oh, that's awesome. I love that. Courtney, how wonderful. So like if we, when they finish like a literature book Mm -hmm. or a a math book, I will, I will make a cake and I will put like, you know, child name, you know, and then the title of the book. (laughs) Because you do, you, when I say celebrate, you literally need to celebrate. Mm. Courtney, I love this so much. And I think, you know, from my own experience of having homeschooled for and being homeschooled myself, it's great that homeschooling is so flexible and adaptable to the day, but you can really get in this pattern where you just sort of get up and do things every day and you never really mark the milestones or the transitions Mm. or the accomplishments. And I think particularly for kids who find certain tasks a struggle saying, go you. Look what you did. Taking the time to do that is just so incredibly valuable. Mm -hmm. I will tell you, I still remember when I finished 100 Easy Lessons, I got a tricycle. (gasps) I will never forget it. I was so excited. At 50 lessons, I got one of those pony heads on a stick that you can run around on. I mean, these were highlights of my childhood. It makes it makes a difference for kids. They remember okay. it. <laughs> I, I, you know what? You know what, Susanna? I hope you're making notes for future episodes. I think we need to do a whole episode on rewards yeah. because I'm always telling people, if the kid did something really hard, give them some chocolate chips. And people are like, what? Feed them sugar? And I say, <laughs> of course you feed them sugar. <laughs> okay. So as we, as we continue on through, sorry, we'll get away from cake. I got distracted by the mention of cake. I I think that we also, in terms of practical advice to parents who are working and teachers are working with kids that have these differences, is I I love this phrasing here. You look at the mismatch in order to find a solution. So Mm -hmm. your goal here is to find a way forward. And Courtney, what would you say the very first thing to do with a struggling student is? 
I I would always check and make sure they can hear and they can see. That's your access to your educational environment. A physical, mm-hmm. physical problems there. A physical problem. And you start with your pediatrician. Most of the time they do an eye check and an ear check at the four-year-old visit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your pediatrician may do it differently. But you eliminate those. Those are solvable problems, right? Mm-hmm. Get, to get a pair of glasses. You know? right. And so you start there. And then if there are still like further physical problems, problems. Occupational therapists exist. Mm -hmm. Speech language pathologists exist and they can help Mm -hmm. your child learn to read. It's very difficult to catch the difference between, you know, A and Apple and A and awesome or whatever, if they can't like distinguish those, to hear those, to speak them. So speech language pathologists exist, physical therapists exist, and they can actually all help. And And point A is, you know, your pediatrician who can refer you should be able to refer you. And I'd like to just a couple of, and and Courtney, I'm sure you have some experiences you can share as well, but um, I know two of my children had issues that the, so one of, one of my kids, the pediatrician did the eye test and the eye test was fine, but I knew there was something because I I was watching the kid's eyes as the kid read and I could see that the eye movement was wasn't tracking, you know, what they weren't Mm -hmm. moving along the page. So I asked for a reference to a specialist, pediatric Mm -hmm. ophthalmologist, not just the chart in the doctor's office, which is a great place to start. And we discovered that there was, in fact, a muscle issue so that the kids eyes just sort of automatically skipped from line to line so that they were never reading one whole sentence at a time. And the therapy for this was really straightforward. It was a it was a piece of cardboard with a, you know, a space, a rectangle cut in it. And the kid just moved it down the page. Just a matter of retraining the kids eyes to progress down the page in an orderly manner. So if if you get a clean bill of health from the pediatrician in terms of of hearing or vision, but you think there's still something wrong, always go with your gut. You know, there's, there's, yeah, always go with your gut. Well, yes, I mean, I say that, but uh, from my own experience, and maybe moms now are more clued in than I was, but it was so easy for me to get buffaloed by a middle-aged white male doctor telling me that the kid was perfectly fine, Mm. you know, and I'm, you know, 22 years old there with my, you know, babies everywhere. (laughs) <laughs> and I was really reluctant to say, mm-hmm. actually, I, I think we need to investigate this further. So you got to be bold. You got to be brave about it. Yeah. Fight for your kids. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. <laughs> and-, <laughs> and don't be afraid to get a second opinion. At one point, I, I traveled out of state for a second opinion and the insurance company kicked it back. And I, so I was I called and I was like, this might require surgery. I, and I talked to the person on the line. I said, if it was your child who needed mm-hmm. a second opinion before possibly having surgery, wouldn't you want them to have mm-hmm. another doctor say, oh, yeah, they definitely need surgery. And then the insurance company person was like, oh, yeah, I didn't realize it was for that. And I was like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. it's OK. You're allowed to do that. Well, and I would say as a rule of thumb, too, if you tell and this this is goes for your pediatrician, but actually, as as you know, I'm I'm in my mid 50s now and I have very elderly parents and a husband who's had a lot of health challenges. So I can tell you this with authority. If you say you want a second opinion and your doctor gives you a hard time about it, go find another doctor mm-hmm. because no good doctor ever resents a second opinion. That's a doctor who either is too rushed too busy or too self-important to actually be paying attention to what's going on. So second opinion is a good way to gauge whether or not your, your doctor's actually paying attention to your concerns. Yeah. So that's the sort of the physical side of things. Courtney, I'm sure you've experienced this as well. If we then move on to, all right, are we going to go to a specialist and get an actual 
diagnosis of a learning problem, whether we call it a difference in disability or disorder, we're not going to get hung up on the word. A lot of parents are really reluctant to move on to this stage um, and to get a label. This can be really scary for parents. It was scary for me. Like I knew, I knew that like there was something off about my eldest handwriting. Like it just was, it looked to me like scribbles and she was trying this, you know, like she was crying. She was trying, she was doing her best, you know, and I didn't understand what the issue was, but it was a lot easier for me to think if I, I just bought another handwriting curriculum, if we just worked harder, if we did another half an hour a day, if I, I could just fix this somehow. But considering the idea that my child actually had like a real problem, that was terrifying. Like that's my baby. My baby's precious, you know, but going and taking that step and getting an an evaluation was helpful for both of us because (laughs) I stopped subjecting her to like hours of unhelpful handwriting practice because Mm. I wasn't teaching her anything. When I started using specific tools that were appropriate for her needs, then she made progress. Getting over that fear was was critical. Well, and I think there can be a bit of a mystique surrounding homeschooling too, which is that the problems are all institutional. They're caused by the schools. Once we pull the kid out of school, if we're doing it properly at home, the problems will resolve themselves. And if you take them out and you're teaching them at home and they still have the problems, mm-hmm. it, it's to, to say, okay, we need a diagnosis is to say, oh, maybe it wasn't actually exactly the school's problem after all. Maybe there's something else going on there. So it's a little bit of like climbing down from our homeschool lofty heights, um, which maybe is hard to do. But I think there's also a real fear among many parents that a label is going to be a diagnosis is what I mean by a label is going to hurt the kid. Mm. Yeah, because then I don't know. There's a there's a famous, you know, how like they're famous bits of writing that travel around the Internet. There's a famous bit Mm -hmm. of writing that I read a long time ago, uh, something about how you thought you were booking a trip to like Spain and you ended up in the Netherlands and like, <laughs> like, how did this happen? And why am I here? And I, you know, or, or what is that song by the talking heads, right? How did I get here? How mm-hmm. is this my life? Right. And so that, that can be really scary when you take that detour, but it's also really important to know where you are. Mm. Of course, the Netherlands were part of Spain. <laughs> but let's not get sidetracked on that, says the historian. Um, <laughs> no, you're, you're absolutely right. The, the, the diagnosis um, and, and the, the analogy that I like to use is if you go in your pantry and there's four containers of white stuff in there and you're going to bake, it's really helpful to know which one's flour, which one's sugar, which one's salt and which one's baking powder. You know, the label doesn't restrict you and the label doesn't say something bad about the flour or find, a, you know, <laughs> a deficiency with the sugar. It just helps you make the correct plan going forward. But I but I just find this fear to be so pronounced mm-hmm. among so many homeschool parents. I think sometimes maybe this is something worth saying. There is a fear of institutional overreach that mm-hmm. like getting a diagnosis means that in some way you're giving up power over your child and that the state in some way can compel you to do something with your child because your child has this label. I would just like to say that is 100% untrue. When you're dealing with medical professionals, there is an expectation of confidentiality. This doesn't get shared with your school district. It doesn't go to your superintendent. This is between you and the child and the doctor. So you don't have to be afraid of that label. It's not going to disadvantage your child in any way. And you don't have to tell anybody. 
No, exactly. Exactly. Look, a, a, a learning a learning disability diagnosis is not the same thing as a broken wrist. The doctor is not a mandated reporter. OK, <laughs> this, this information stays with them. So sort of like taking a breath. And I, I realize that people who've been feel like they've been mistreated by the system, the school mm-hmm. system in particular, can have this sort of knee jerk reaction of I don't want to open up our family life to outside gaze for the sake of the child. Sometimes you just got to take a breath and get over that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, I I actually had this conversation with a really good friend of mine um, who who felt uh, she has a really bright, really, really bright child. And the thing about having a gifted kid is that very often they can like kind of compensate for some learning disabilities. But yes. the child had like hit the wall. You know what I mean? Mm. Like the compensation was no longer compensating. And she was really scared to take her child in. And I said, honey, you know, you don't have to tell anybody. You don't have to share it with with anybody. You can keep it to yourself. But it might help your child, who is a teenager at this point, to know that they're not a failure. They didn't Mm. do anything wrong. It's not intrinsically a bad kid. And that really kind of helped her you know, and yes, the child had a diagnosis and yes, it's made a difference. And they actually enrolled in a college with a specific program for children mm-hmm. like that. And they have a bright, bright future ahead of them. I think that's a great story to showcase that we should look at diagnoses more as tools than as labels, because like in, in that case, having the diagnosis opens up all these resources, opens up, you know, now what are, what are other folks doing who have this struggle? You know, what are, what's the right place for me to go to college? Where are the places that will accommodate what I need to learn? And it just, it's a, it can open up a whole lot of resources and support. Well, and I think this is, this is maybe a good place to sort of like begin to draw to an end and say, I Mm. think one of the things that keeps coming up here is that if you've got a child with learning differences is that you are not alone. Mm. That's true. I'm here. I'll raise my hand. Yeah. (laughs) I I mean, I think you've, you've pointed out that Courtney, that one in five students have some Mm -hmm. sort of learning difference, disability, attention challenge, something that doesn't fit the mold. And I know the most common are dyslexia, dysgraphia, ADHD, but there's a whole whole range of ways in which kids differ from what the mold, I was doing many years, you can't see that, might expect of them. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's nothing to be, that's nothing to be I don't I don't I I think I want to say ashamed but that sounds even too strong cuz it's not like we're ashamed of our kids it's that we're apprehensive yeah mm. yeah we're afraid and yeah. and, and I want to like this goes this goes out from my heart to yours you don't have to be afraid you don't have mm-hmm. to be scared your child with a learning difference can be a happy healthy productive member of society they can have a good life i know i have a great life and i have a learning difference too so uh, i'm proof and there are many of us out there in the world doing good stuff out there i you know as a parent of adult children i will look back and say that you know the the biggest regrets I have about their education in particular is not getting intervention sooner than I actually did. We spent way too long beating our heads against a wall without getting expert help. And, you know, the, then when once we got expert help, the problems began to resolve themselves. And I thought, look at the time we wasted. 
You know, why was I, why was I afraid? And I don't know that I could have even put words to that fear, but you're right, Courtney, fear was a really, really big part of it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And with that, I think we can probably close out for today. Thank you all for sharing your experiences and expertise with this. Um, We will have a lot of show notes for this episode. And one thing I will also encourage is uh, the Well-Trained Mind Forums has a big community of parents who are supporting students who have differences. And so that's another resource that I'll link in the show notes. Other than that, thanks for listening. And you can follow us and like and subscribe and comment wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have questions or things you want us to talk about or look into, um, send us an email at podcast at welltrainedmind.com. Hi, it's Susanna here with a quick end of episode note. As we're thinking about wrapping season one, we're going to have 12 episodes total in this season. We just want to give a huge thank you to everyone for supporting the very first season of this podcast, for subscribing, for reviewing, for sending us emails and suggestions. We really appreciate you so much. It has truly made the experience of starting a podcast rewarding, and we're looking forward to many more seasons to come. To thank you for your support, we are offering a 20% off coupon for the Well-Trained Mind store that will run from today, November 8th, 2023 to November 15th, 2023. And that code is in all caps, W-T-M-P-O-D. That's W-T-M-P-O-D. It'll work for items on our online store at welltrainedmind.com. Thank you so much for your support throughout season one of the Well-Trained Mind podcast. I will link all this information in the show notes. Have a great day.